The last time we were in Colossians, we heard the Apostle Paul state the proper reason to pursue sanctification, and that being thanksgiving for the work of Christ. That's why we pursue sanctification. It's out of the overflow of the heart, giving thanks to God for what he's accomplished in Christ, that we want to pursue the things that please God. We want to honor God with our life as a result of Christ's accomplishments. And today, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul go on to specifically address why this needs to be emphasized at Colossae. As we'll see here, there were false teachers in the church at Colossae. And they were trying to teach that if you wanted to be spiritually mature or complete, you must listen to their teachings and do certain things to truly become an enlightened or spiritual Christian. So our text today comes to us in the form of an apostolic warning, a serious warning. Paul specifically addresses the need for the church, all churches in history and time, to be on guard against error. This warning is desperately needed today in our time, maybe even more so than in Paul's time, because false teaching never really goes away. False teaching simply finds new deceptive ways to reinvent itself through demon-inspired teachers and unregenerate teachers, because it's, it's fueled, the, the very idea of false teaching is fueled by the deceiver himself, Satan. And it's meant to stunt the life of the church. Since our salvation is secure, the devil knows he cannot change that condition, but he can dilute the church in the world through false teaching. He can also discourage the saints to make them less effective in this present age. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5 that we need to be aware of our enemies because he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, who may swallow up whole. That doesn't mean to lose your salvation. It means he will consume you with error. And so that's why I think that I must warn you this morning from the text to beware of false teaching. Because false teaching, as I said, is sadly alive in our day. It's promoted by teachers who see the church as a means of gain, and they do so either directly because they are influenced by Satan or indirectly out of an unregenerate greed to consume the church for their own good. Second Peter tells us that. Second Peter 2. Look with me there. Verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Notice what they do. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And notice this next verse. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. That's what Paul and Peter are wanting to warn the churches about today as we read our text. And so I want you to understand that's the foundation behind what I'm going to read to you this morning in second or I'm sorry in Colossians 2:8. I actually want to read all the way to 8:15 to hold the text together. Listen to what Paul writes here to the church at Colossae. Verse 8 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, speaking of Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, namely Christ. Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives the Colossians a serious warning about the nature of false teaching and he doesn't leave it off at that. He goes on to talk about the supremacy of Christ's reconciliation. But we, we as Christians have this given to us by divine means, the powerful working of God. But today it's sad that we know that many people are being misled by people who practice what these false teachers were practicing in Paul's day. Today I believe that the greatest threat to evangelicals is not from outside, it's from within. Islam is not our greatest threat. Cults are not our greatest threat. A lack of biblical discernment is the greatest threat we face today in the church. Today, the only heresy is to say that there is heresy being taught in the church. But without biblical discernment, error will breed and grow like gangrene. Error seems to be going unchecked today as we look around at our Christian culture. As long as you put God on the label, people buy it today. It doesn't matter if it's a movie or a sermon series or a book. We see error creeping into the church in every area of media. And this is a deceptive and a corrosive attack on not only Christ, but on the sufficiency of God's word. There are best-selling authors today that make claims about their trips to heaven as if we need more revelation than what we have in Scripture. That's an attack on the sufficiency of the Bible. I don't need to hear about your testimony of your supposed trip to heaven. I don't even believe it's true because Scripture has given me all that I need in Christ and His revelation. There are people who write books today about spiritual encounters with angels or how they experience God mystically through direct encounters rather than biblically through Scripture. There are even men today who proclaim new ways to find God's blessing through their Daniel diet plan. And sadly, Christians are pouring out their money to buy this deception. And they're being taken. They're being scammed. They're being tricked. They're being captivated by a worldly philosophy in the name of Christianity. People are taking the, the words of these teachers and their testimonies over or on equal terms with the word of God. We must beware of this. The word of God is sufficient. 
We need no other testimonies. I need no other kind of encounters than what I have with my living God and his living word. And I think this is going on. I think there's a lack of discernment today because it's obvious that people aren't reading the word. If they were reading the word, they wouldn't be captured by empty deceptions and worldly systems. Frankly, all of Paul's epistles confront those things. And if Christians today were reading the epistles, they wouldn't be reading this dribble. They wouldn't be falling into deception if they were reading the scriptures and truly seeking God's direction there first and foremost. They would see the counterfeits when they rise up and say, that doesn't square with scripture. If they would speak up and they would stand up today, though, there's a problem. If men stand up today, and there are men standing up and speaking the truth in love, but, but when they do so, they are attacked for speaking the truth. They are attacked for speaking out against error because the church world in general, I'm not talking about Christians, but the world that calls themselves the church world, they consider those men who speak out against their favorite teachers or books or media as divisive. Those, those teachers are divisive. They're, they're dividing the body of Christ by speaking out against X preacher or this sermon series or this new bestseller. Right? These people who, who see those who speak out, they despise them today. They're despised by these captured consumers of self-help and self-esteem and self-promotion. If Jesus and Paul were to show up today, they would be considered divisive by many in the church world. Matter of fact, if they read Jesus and Paul, they would understand what I mean. Jesus says this in Matthew 7 about false teaching. Matthew 7, 15. In 7, 15, he says, Beware of false prophets, pseudo-prophets, so-called prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That's pretty divisive stuff. Jesus says, watch out for those pastors. That's what he's saying. Who come to you with greedy motives, with teaching that doesn't square with Scripture, teaching that's more focused on man than on the glory of God. They're really there to devour you. Paul says something likewise in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11. This would cause Paul to be... Ignored, blocked on Twitter, if he was to post something like this today by many evangelicals. 11.1 says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts, circle that, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you or comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. He's saying, I want to present you as a pure and spotless bride to Christ. But you're putting up with men who proclaim another Jesus. They use the word Jesus. They just redefine who he is. They present to you another kind of spirit, which is not the one that's inspiring scripture. 
They come to you with a different means of salvation or a different take on salvation that says it's Jesus plus. Do this, do that, do this other thing. He goes, and you put up with it. I'm concerned, he says. He goes on further to elaborate on that in verse 13. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles or messengers of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Church, we must be careful about what we listen to, about what we read, about what we take in. We must discern the truth. We must understand this. Discerning the truth does not divide the body of Christ. False teaching does. We must be on guard against that which would divide and spoil the spotless bride of Christ. We need to be Bereans. We need to be examining the scriptures daily to see if these things that we're hearing are really so. The Bereans examined the Apostle Paul. We should at least examine those men who aren't even apostles today. That's the emphasis of the Apostle Paul in Colossians 2, 8 to 15. Paul warns the church at Colossae and Christians throughout history that we must identify false teaching as it tries to slip into the church. And we'll not be able to do so if we don't have a biblical understanding of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. That's what that whole chapter is about. In Colossians 2.8 specifically, though, we hear a very serious warning about false teaching. And it's really the job of the shepherd, the under-shepherd of Christ, to deliver this message to you. It's not a popular position. When we, when we say discern these things, expose these things, talk about these things with your friends who are being misled, it's going to bring heat down upon those who say that. But we have a stewardship that belongs to God. I'm accountable to him. I'm not really concerned about what anyone else thinks. Every faithful shepherd, under shepherd, should be warning about false teaching. It should be exposing error as the Apostle Paul does here. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in Acts 20 as he commissioned the elders there at Ephesus. He told them to look out because people were going to come into the church and lead people astray. But he says, I've given you the word of Christ. I've commended you to the word of Christ to guide you. So we do have a guide, even though we need to be warned. We also have a guide to keep us from going astray. But we must warn. We must warn because doctrinal unity about Christ is essential. Without doctrinal unity, there is no unity in the church. So we must confront error. We must wage war against error, just as Paul does here in Colossians 2.8. Let me read the text to you. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Or it could be translated, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy, even empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. In that passage, Paul gives the highest of warnings when he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. It means to be kidnapped. Okay? Captive by philosophy that 
is not in accord with Christ. It can be translated this way. Be constantly on guard because false teaching seeks to carry you off back into slavery to the flesh through the vain and empty deceit of an ideology that says you must be complete only by adding to Christ's work. You must complete in the flesh what Christ started in the spirit. That's the same kind of thing that was happening at Galatia. This kind of philosophy coming into the church will corrupt the effectiveness of the church. It will damage the Christian spiritual life. And you'll never experience the kind of joy that Paul talks about that's found in faith in Christ alone. Paul says this, this kind of philosophy, this kind of teaching will captivate your mind. It'll capture your mind. It'll trap you. It'll carry you away. It'll distort your thinking and eventually your living. Now, when Paul uses the term philosophy, he's not simply talking about the love of wisdom. And the love of wisdom is a good thing. We should love to be wise. We should love wisdom that comes from God, right? All Christians should pursue that. We love the wisdom of God's word. We delight in the wisdom of God's word. When Paul uses the word philosophy, he's talking about a form of teaching that was familiar to the Jews and to the pagans at this time. When he uses this term He's using it this way to define basically any kind of elaborate system of thought or moral discipline that leads you away from resting in Christ's accomplishments. Philosophy would be an elaborate system of thought or moral disciplines that would cause you to doubt the sufficiency of Christ, to say you need to add something to Christ's atoning work through your works. Philosophy is used in this verse to identify the false teaching at Colossae, but it's described in the next words, the next word you see. It's described as empty deceit. That describes the nature of this philosophy. Their philosophy was based on this mystical teaching and this mixture of ascetic practices that needed to be followed in order to make them full Christians. You see that word filled up in, I think it's verse um, 10. He's talking about being made full there in Christ. And what they're saying is you're not full in Christ. You're not a fully spiritual Christian unless you follow our teachings, plus what Jesus said, plus these ascetic practices. So that's why we had this warning here in this text. And this warning transcends time. This, this warning is, is basically the way that Paul would define the nature of all false teaching. And that's going to be your outline this morning. In verse 8, Paul defines the nature of false teaching as, number one, basically empty. Number two, false teaching is basely deceitful. Number three, false teaching, the nature of false teaching is described as based on human tradition. And number four, false teaching is built on elementary principles. Paul defines the nature of false teaching as basically empty, basically deceitful, based on human tradition, and built on elementary principles. Now we're going to look at verse 8. In verse 8, A, the first half, God reveals through Paul's writing that, number one, false teaching is basically empty. 
In verse 8, Paul defines the nature of false teaching as empty, fruitless. That's what he means. It's without spiritual effect because it's based on the flesh. It's teaching that's focused on outward conformity to rules or rituals, but it has no spiritual power to cultivate true love for God, a love for the saints, a love for the lost. It's insufficient. It's empty. It's shallow. It's a whole. It's not full. It's also viewed as a means of self-sanctification, self-driven sanctification. It's, it's the idea of trying to change oneself spiritually by, by doing things outwardly to obtain God's favor or earn salvation itself. And that is empty. We cannot earn God's favor. We can't earn God's blessings because we are insufficient in and of ourselves. We are sinners. We fall short of the glory of God constantly. Yet we want to be changed spiritually, and it won't be changed by conforming outwardly to certain rules and rituals. It's change that comes from regeneration, a new heart, a heart that is trusting in the work of Christ alone. Without that, anything we do is fruitless and useless in God's sight. There's an example of that in Scripture. In Matthew 19, there was a man who tried to conform outwardly to the law of God, and he thought he had done it. He actually says that he had done it. And when he's confronted with Jesus's words, the reality of the fact comes out that this man's heart was not conformed from the inside out. It was from the outside in trying to please God and earn his favor and earn a place in heaven. Yet Christ is emphasizing this so that this man would be broken and that he would repent. But this man loved his riches more than he loved Christ. Look what it says in Matthew 19, verse 16. Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what, you're, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man said, I have conformed to the image of the law. I've been doing all the right stuff, but I'm not full. I know something's missing. I'm still empty. And when Jesus tells him that he must trust in him, the man says, no, but I, I've done everything else. What, I'm, what, am I, what am I going to do? What do I have to do? Jesus says, trust in me. Without trusting Christ, whatever we do will always be empty. No outward conformity to rules will change our hearts. The heart must change the life. Contrary to the false teaching, the Bible does say that that can happen. But it happens through faith in Christ and Christ alone. Through faith in Christ, spiritual fruitfulness will be evident in Christians. Look at John, John 15, 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, 
My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There is a way to be made full. There is a way to bear fruit, but it's not starting on the outside working in. It's abiding in Christ, trusting in Christ. His work is what changes our hearts. We now long for the law of God. We love the law of God because Christ loved the law of God and fulfilled it for us. Therefore, evidence of that salvation comes through our life being changed out of gratefulness. The fruit of our union with Christ is obedience. We don't obey to obtain, though. It comes out of those who have been regenerated. We were created for good works, Ephesians 2 says. But it was by grace through faith in Christ that that is granted to us. Church, we're we're called on to be constantly on guard against any kind of teaching that focuses on outward conformity to rules or even experiences that are held above the gospel, more important than the gospel, or to supplement the gospel. Anything that does that would be empty and lead us astray, it would be distractive to us. We need to be focusing on the work of Christ. That is what will produce true fruit in us and nourish others around us. Not me trying to be a good person. Not me trying to improve myself so that God would find some way to bless me. Instead, I need to be looking into the work of Christ and rejoicing. And as a result, the fruit of that will be I will pursue the will of God joyfully, thankfully, from the inside out. Maybe not perfectly, but I will rest in what Christ did perfectly. Now go back with me to Colossians 2.8b. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. Here, God reveals that, number two, false teaching is basely deceitful. Basely deceitful. The nature of false teaching is deceitful. In reality, it is, as we would call it, base or fleshly. That's the nature. It's driven by the flesh, not by the spirit. And therefore, it's deceitful. It, 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 it promises to transform the heart, but it only cultivates pride in the flesh when we obey the rules and the regulations. It cultivates self-righteousness. Look what Matthew 23 says about this base and fleshly idea of false teaching, this philosophy that comes to us in the form of outward conformity to rules. Matthew 23, when Jesus speaks to the Pharisees who had this down pat, they had this down well, they were doing everything right on the outside, but inwardly they weren't transformed. He basically calls them base and deceitful. Look what it says in verse uh, 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now, you know the word hypocrites there means play actors. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness. Verse 28 says, So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is calling their approach and their teaching fleshly, base, and deceitful. They mask the inward with this outward conformity to rules. And they promise others that it will change them. They just load them up, though, with more burdens that they cannot carry when they do so. It's base. It's fleshly. It promotes self-driven sanctification, self-praise and pride in the heart. In this chapter of Matthew, you have the greatest example of Jesus' attitude toward false teachers. Woe to you, you pretenders. Woe means to be damned. To come undone under God's wrath. That's what he's saying to them. You have distorted the truth That God has given to the point of causing men to think that they must obey your rules to be made right with God. That is never what the Old Testament taught. That is never what the law taught. It always exposed man's inability. It caused us to trust in God's promised sacrifice that would cover our sins. And Jesus says, woe to you, you base, deceitful teachers. All false teaching is basely deceitful. It has, it has fleshly motivation. But the promise of Christ's work does what these false teachers think that their outward works will do. The promise of trusting in Christ will actually transform the heart and the life of the Christian. Look with me at Second Peter. Second Peter 1. As we read through Colossians, as you read through it and you study it, you'll see every time that Paul has to expose error, he points back to Christ to compare it. He says, look, here's what they say. Look what Christ did. A better circumcision, a better burial, a better resurrection. It's all over there in Christ. And here in Peter, Peter is saying, if you've looked to Christ and you trust in what he has done, there is a promise That will transform the heart. But it's based in Christ's work. Not in your own. Look what it says in verse 3. Speaking of God. He says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which notice he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and etc. and etc. He says, look, because this promise has been granted to you, given to you, because of that, now you have every reason to Continue on in the faith joyfully. You can add these things to your life, not to obtain God's favor, but because you have received God's favor. We have the promises of the divine nature 
In other words, the heart of God given to us that will fill us up. We need to be on guard against anyone who would try to say, though, you need to actually follow our directions in order to become blessed by God, prosperous, happy, satisfied, follow this, plus add in Jesus. No, we must guard against that. In Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. In the revelation specifically of Christ in Scripture, you have everything you need for your soul, for your psyche, for your life. All the directions you need are here. It is sufficient. We must be on guard against any teaching that is base and fleshly motivated. What, what, just think about this. What do... And listen, we're, we're all guilty of this to some degree, and we all have to repent and go back through our bookshelves, right? But what do the teachers and the authors you read promote most? Think about this. Do they promote a sort of base and fleshly motivated sanctification? Do they promote your best life now, or do they promote the glory of Christ now? Do they praise the attributes of God or promote the self-esteem of man? If they promote the glory of man, they are deceitful and they are base and we must watch out for them. We are here to glorify God and God alone is to be praised. When we study books, when we read and when we listen and when we watch things that are Christian, we need to evaluate them. We need to discern, are they magnifying the attributes of God or are they magnifying the blessings to man? It's hard sometimes to discern. Sometimes it takes work and labor and study so that you can actually decipher, where's this man going with this teaching? Is it leading upward to the glory of God or is it leading downward to the glory of man? Paul wants us to be aware of that. Be careful of that. Watch out for those men who try to mask their self-driven sanctification in Christian terms. Through legalism. Sometimes it's not as blatant as out and out follow these three steps, but sometimes it is. Three steps to a blessed life. Seven steps to happiness. Listen, if you're in Christ, you have a blessed life. If you're in Christ, there is joy that exceeds happiness. We don't need these things, folks. We need God's Word, it is sufficient. If God's word doesn't satisfy a Christian's heart, no book on the bestsellers list will. Listen, even when I read a book that I think is a good book, I am discerning all the way through. I don't care if it's John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, or John Piper, whoever it is, I'm looking at everything they're saying. And sometimes I have to say, I don't think that's right. The scripture doesn't seem to line up with this. Let's check it out. Sometimes I'm wrong. And that's okay, but I need to be careful. We need to have the lens of Scripture in front of us at all times. Because listen, church, Satan is deceptive. His agents are deceptive, and they love the church. Satan doesn't care about the world. The world's already damned. Satan wants to water the church down, make us less effective, affect our walk, affect our faithfulness, affect our joy, so that we would be stunted in our growth. 
We're commanded in Scripture to be on guard. See to it, he says. Be constantly. It means in the, in the Greek, it means to be constantly on guard, not just, you know, be careful one time. Be constantly discerning these things. Now, back in 2.8c, God goes on to reveal, thirdly, that false teaching is based on human traditions. It's based on human traditions. It doesn't come from God. It's not from God's word. It's from man's interpretation or man's view of the world. The nature of false teaching is based on that which is passed down by men, not by God. Not by the biblical teachings or the traditions of the apostles as revealed in God's word either. We do have traditions. If they're grounded in scripture, they're biblical. But if they're by the word of man... Watch out for them. Watch out for them. At the church at Colossae, they had men coming in with traditions, human traditions. They said would would supplement the word of God, would would add to the word of God. It would make it more effective, more effectual, more jazzed up, if you will. Paul says those are human traditions. Watch out for them. These false teachers, this philosophy is based on human traditions, not according to Christ. The false teachers at Colossae, in particular, were teaching a mixture of Christianity, Judaism, angel idolatry, and asceticism. means the harsh treatment of the body. Look with me at Colossians 2 to see that. You can see it defined for us there. Colossians 2, 16. He defines it this way. This is what was going on there. This is what they needed to watch out for. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So there's some Judaism mixed into there. OK, he says they these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. He says, watch out for this stuff. This sounds bizarre, doesn't it? How could Christians get caught up in in worshiping angels? Come on. Well, part of this pre-Gnostic idea was that angels were intermediaries. They came down to help. They came down to give us special knowledge and intercede and work for us. So let's listen to them. They would, have, they would have these visions. They would have these, these moments where they're caught up in this super ecstatic state where they understand things that come directly from these angelic beings. Well, it's coming from angels, so therefore it must be good. So he's saying, actually, they're worshiping angels. And then they're passing on the things they're learning from angels to you as traditions. Now, Paul tells us in Corinthians that what the Gentiles worship in their ignorance are demons. Who do you think was influencing these false teachers? These false teachers held to extra biblical revelations and rules, oral traditions. Okay, They mixed the oral traditions of something called the Mishnah, with these supposed angelic intermediaries revelations, these pre-Gnostic ideas, they blended them together. The Mishnah 
was a commentary on the Old Testament scriptures. It wasn't the scriptures. It was a commentary by men that they took and they carried over and say, we need to follow these. This is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees went beyond the word of God, adding to the law. That's what they did. They took the commentary as more authoritative than the actual word. That's what Paul's confronting here. They took this kind of Jewish idea, mixed it with this pre-Gnostic angelic intercession, and then they passed it on in the form of a special revelation or a secret knowledge derived from their visions. This sounds far out, doesn't it? Not if you watch TBN. It's the same thing. Angels come to me, tell me these things. Jesus shows up while I'm shaving and talks to me. Listen, Jesus will show up again only one more time. Scripture's clear on that. He promised he would come back one more time. And listen, he loves us. He's came to us. He's revealed himself to us in his inerrant word. And that is more than sufficient for me. I don't need angelic messages. I have God's message. And this is Paul's point. These messages come from human tradition. Philosophy, false teaching comes from human traditions. It doesn't come from God's scriptures. We need to be careful, saints. False teaching always begins here. It assaults the sufficiency of God's word. It's indirect sometimes. Well, an angel told me this. Well, this happened to me. I heard a, heard a sound or I saw something or this experience happened to me. Well, in one sense, what you're saying is the Bible's not enough. God had to do something else. Listen, God can do whatever he wills. He is sovereign. And he has willed to reveal himself clearly to us in Scripture. That is his will. And that should overjoy us. Anything that assaults the sufficiency of God's word should be rejected. That will not stand on the day of judgment. It cannot stand. All these revelations, all these ideologies cannot stand up against the revelation of God in Scripture. These things are unnecessary and they are contrary to the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Remember what God said in Galatians and in Timothy about this false teacher, these false teachers coming into the church and the sufficiency of his word. Look with me at Galatians 1. God takes this very seriously. The harshest language I could ever think of is found here in Galatians 1 when it comes to how we should think about those who come to us with a different message other than that which is inscripturated. Galatians 1.6 The harshest language in the New Testament. The only epistle written by Paul that's not commending the church for something good. Because these false teachers had came into the church at Galatia. These Judaizers trying to add traditions, the Jewish traditions, back into Christianity. And he says this in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. And what that means is in the Greek is one that is not the gospel. Okay, there is only one gospel. It's a heterodox idea here. It's the opposite of the gospel. Not that there is another, another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then notice verse 8. 
But even if we, that is apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned, is the word. Separated from God for all eternity. That's what that means. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He repeats it, right? He repeats it here to emphasize the danger, to emphasize the reality that anything that comes to you outside of Scripture is one that will distort the gospel. Any message, any revelation, doesn't matter who it's from, a preacher, a teacher, your best friend, your mom, if it comes to you outside of Scripture, it is dangerous. It is deceptive. It is damning. Scripture is sufficient. That's what Paul will tell us in 2 Timothy 3, 16. Contrary to the false teachers, we have an all-sufficient word, an all-sufficient Savior. And his word is all that we need for us to grow spiritually with. Look what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete or competent, equipped for every good work. Paul's really clear in that passage. We need no other word. We need no other revelation. We need no intermediaries. We have God's inerrant and infallible inspired word. That's all we need to grow spiritually and prosper spiritually. Church, we we must be constantly on guard against any type of teaching that places human traditions or testimonial experiences above the revelation of Scripture. That's what was happening at Colossae. They had testimonial experiences with these angels who gave them messages and they became super knowledgeable because of this and they brought it down to the church and tried to incorporate this idea into the church saying you have to do what we say. Follow these practices in order for you to be a true and faithful Christian to be blessed by God, etc. We don't need any of that. We need God's word. It is all we need. To prosper spiritually. In Colossians 2 8 D, he goes on to say, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. In this passage, God reveals that, number four, false teaching is built on elementary principles of the world. Paul says, Be on guard against. Elemental spirits of the world. It's better translated elemental principles of the world. The nature of false teaching is to build on the wrong foundation. And we need to understand this. Any teaching that's not in accord with the revealed truth about Christ's all-sufficient work that Paul preached, that Paul had been teaching here at Colossae, anything that doesn't teach that is built on shifting sand, not the solid rock of Christ Jesus. It's not in accord with him. Now, church, the only way you're going to be able to identify that is to be in the word. You have to know God's word. You have to have an intimate knowledge of God through his word, worshiping him through the word as you study the word, so that you will identify those who come to you outside the word, trying to bring to you this kind of idea of this elemental principle to make you a better Christian. What Paul's saying here is this. 
all, all false teaching is built on elementary principles. And we've got teachers here, right? Elementary principles, step-by-step principles. One, two, three, A, B, C, principles. The idea here is rudimentary ideas. All false teaching is built on rudimentary ideas, but notice, of the world. Rudimentary ideas of fallen men, not the word of God. False teaching is built on the thinking of the world, not the thinking of God. Here's what all world religions have in common. They teach that man can find favor with God, salvation from God, blessings from God, through external obedience. That's worldly. If you hear anything like that coming into the church, that's not from God. That's elementary principles of the world. They say you can obtain God's favor through rules, follow five steps, Ten Commandments, right? Through rituals, through rites. Those are the ABCs to secure your salvation. And it makes sense from an unregenerate perspective, doesn't it? If you had before you five steps to God being your Savior and your blessed Redeemer, then you would follow those five steps. But there's no faith involved in that. There's no trust in what Christ did in that that's fleshly. What, what unbeliever in his right mind, if was told you can do three things to be saved, wouldn't say, okay, sure, I'll run through those three things real quick. Now I'm saved. Right? That's not regeneration. Regeneration comes from above, not through elementary principles being obeyed. Christianity teaches the opposite of all world religions. We teach that we have already found God's favor through Christ's obedience and his sacrifice. Not through the obedience that we pursue, not through any kind of sacrifice we make. We trust in Christ, in Christ alone, who he is, what he did, what he promises. I put no stock in what I do, what I can do, or what I should do, I have to trust in what he did. It is finished. It's complete in him. Christianity is the only, if you would, world religion, if you could put it that way, that teaches this. In other words, it distinguishes Christianity. What distinguishes Christianity from the world is Christ. Trust in Christ, not obedience to rules, rituals, and ABCs. Paul says, beware of any teaching that's built on rudimentary ideas of fallen men that we see actually explained here in Colossians 2.20. He says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that, are, that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Then notice this in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value to stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They can't change the heart. They can't conform us to the image of Christ. But outwardly, we look pretty impressive when we follow these ABCs. I go to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. I go, I, I go here and I go there and I do all these good works. The world sees that and says, wow, that looks like a really good person. 
But in reality, if you're doing it just for this outward show or this trying to please God, it is of no value. It doesn't change the heart. Be on guard against that. Be on guard constantly because the enemy of our soul seeks to dilute the church and discourage us by slipping away into philosophies that will lead us from Christ, say that Christ is not enough. And here's one that we probably all struggle with as Christians. It's one that comes into our minds, I think, from birth. And once we're saved, it doesn't always go away. Sometimes it keeps coming back. When you sin, and you have sinned, you've sinned this morning. When you sin, but you sin grievously, and you, you, you know it, there's a part of your flesh, this unredeemed flesh, that still rises up and says, what do I need to do to make this right? I did this bad thing, therefore I need to do this good thing to make what I did over here better. God's not happy with me anymore, so I've got to do this now so he'll be happy. Saints, that's a, that's a, that's a lie from Satan. God is as happy with you as he'll ever be in Christ. He loves you as much as he'll ever love you through Christ. He has already forgiven all that you have done, all that you ever will do. Doesn't mean we don't repent. Doesn't mean we don't want to repent. But we don't have to atone for our sins through obedient acts, balancing the scales. That's Islam. That's not Christianity. But listen, that, that, that becomes something that gets in our hearts even as Christians today. We've all felt that. Be on guard against that. When that happens, look to Christ. Call upon God and give thanks for what Christ has accomplished to save you. Be on guard constantly. Be on guard against those who, who want to focus on three steps to finding favor with God. Be on guard against those who teach for calls of obedience to the Old Testament ceremonial laws to grow spiritually. In other words, become like an Old Testament Jew and then you'll have real deep Christianity. No, that's elementary. We're in Christ. He is the, he is the one who graduated from the Old Testament, if you will. And he gave us all his righteousness, all his goodness was imputed and obedience was imputed to our account. We're accepted in him. We need no other experience and ritual or tradition. We have Christ. Paul here in Colossians is warning us about any type of doctrine or practice that would lead us to attempt to maintain God's favor or obtain his favor by external means and not by faith in Christ alone. That kind of teaching that he's talking about here contradicts the truth about the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work, his reconciling work that brought sinners back into union with the Savior, with a God who is great and holy. It's saying that what Jesus did was not enough. And to say that is to not be in accord with Christ. What Christ did was more than sufficient to cover our sins, to bring us God's blessing, to sustain us eternally. We need not add anything to that. Church, Paul warns the Colossians and he warns us this morning to beware of any kind of false teaching that would tweak the gospel, that would lean toward the flesh, focus on man rather than focusing on God. My question is, are you guarding your souls? Are you on guard against false teaching personally? We guard it here in the pulpit publicly. But what are you doing privately? 
What are you feeding on? What are you listening to? What are you watching? Are you discerning? Is, is the grid of Scripture in front of everything you view or listen to? When you pick up books on religious subjects, are you sure they line up with Scripture? When you hear claims by teachers and pastors that they have a, a new, powerful teaching from God, but it's not in accord with the basic doctrine of who Christ is and the gospel itself, you need to reject it. You need to stay away from it. You need to call it for what it is. It's error. It's heresy. God wants us to do this to protect our purity. We must be constantly on guard. And how do you do that? How do you become a Christian who's constantly on guard? Well, you must spend time in God's word. You must invest time in God's word praying and reading and studying it. If you're going to be able to tell the difference between the, the real and the fake, you have to spend time in the truth. Then you'll identify the counterfeit. If you don't know who Christ is and what he did, how do you know if someone's teaching the truth about him? How do you identify it? You won't know unless you spend time in his word where we have the pure, unadulterated truth of God's revelation. These words in Colossians 2 are really important today. They're important for us. We need to constantly... Remember this, constantly be on guard against anything that is not in accord with the biblical teachings about Christ. This is the duty of every one of you here today. Not just elders, not just deacons, not just church leaders. Every Christian should be a Berean. Being on guard against false teaching, examining, examining everything carefully, being ready to defend the truth for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and the good of others around us. So, I just pray that verse 8 will stick in your hearts, in your minds, as you begin to go out into the world and to look at things that are around us and examine things carefully that come to us in the name of Christianity. God wants a pure and spotless bride. We want to be effective in this world. And we won't be effective if there are stains of false teaching on the church. If we let in false teaching at any point... Paul warns that it will spread like gangrene, will corrupt and kill the life of the church. Let's pray that that doesn't happen here. And let's pray that we're not simply looking out for error, but that we're rejoicing in truth so we can see error when it rises up. Heavenly Father, we pray that that is, that is what we do. We pray that we would, we would see the glory of Christ revealed in Scripture as supreme, as the, the drive of our heart, the desire of our life to know more about what he's done, to rejoice over what he's accomplished. And in so doing, be, be protected from those who come in with another doctrine, another Jesus, another gospel, another spirit, one that's not in accord with your word. Protect, I pray, your church. Each one of us and the church corporately gathered here together on Sundays. Father, I pray that you would, you would guide us so that we would be compassionate toward those who are possibly still in error, but yet at the same time be vigilant to stand firm against error when it rises up to threaten the unity of the church. I pray this, Lord, for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen.